0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 614th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who looks outside the box for garden growing. We're talking with Jen Freimark about growing fresh and closer to home. Jen is the chief greenhouse officer of Gotham Greens, a pioneer in urban indoor agriculture with a national network of local high-tech farms. At Gotham Greens, Jen oversees all greenhouse design and growing operations. Prior to Gotham Greens, she managed greenhouses at McMurdo and South Pole stations in Antarctica. Providing fresh vegetables for U.S. research scientists. How cool is that? She also worked in the greenhouse at the Cuisinart Resort and Spa in Anguilla and designed and led operations for the Science Barge in New York City. Jen earned her master's degree in plant sciences from the University of Arizona and a bachelor's degree in plant biology from Arizona State University. Welcome to the show today, Jen. Are you ready to rock?
1: yes thank you so much for having me it's long overdue
0: oh my gosh that is such the case so i shared a bit about you can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today
1: Yes, absolutely. And what's so fun about getting to do this podcast with you is in a lot of ways my story starts with you. Isn't that fun? Um, which is just I think just a testament to how much like the work you've done has inspired Aww. so many people and certainly myself. So well, thank you. I really, yeah, a lot of my the launch of my career started with you. And so I mean I can just wow. start with that story, you know. I, you know, was at we were at ASU together. Yep. And I was sort of floundering and bouncing around majors and trying to decide what I would do.
0: This was and in. Gosh, what,
1: this yeah, was, I'm trying to think what year this would have been. 1998, 1999?
0: Yep, maybe? 99. That's when but I started at ASU. Few, yeah.
1: Okay. Because that would have been my third year there already. Mm-hmm. Um, Second year. And uh, yeah, so we took an organic gardening class together. In August. An, yes. And you know, I already, I, I mean, my I've always been a strong math science person, right? So I knew it was going to be something in the sciences that I did and was just, you know, took that as an elective, and I loved it. It was my first experience really working with plants, and you and I had that class was based, um, yes, there was classroom time, but we were also based out at the farm at South Mountain. Yep. And we had that class out there, and I remember the day that we had to, like, prepped <laughs> this field plot, and it was scorching hot.
0: Yeah, in and August.
1: you and I just bonded. You know, there was a field, and they were like, all right, we're going to teach you guys double digging. And I think the whole rest of the class just, like, were St- so wimpy, and they just couldn't, they're like, we can't do it. And you and yeah. I did the whole thing together. Yeah, they, I think they um, stood
0: back and watched us.
1: Yes, and I just, like, the bond between us was instantly formed. We were both really passionate about it, and we were both really hard workers. So I think, you know, you and I began our relationship, you know, in that class. But because of it, like, you know, we worked so much together during that class and at the farm and just became friends, you know, and you had the urban farm going at your place and I just started getting involved. Uh, You started teaching me about permaculture, fruit trees, I mean, everything, you know, and uh, just really, in a lot of ways, when I was just a new plant lover, Uh I guess, I feel like in a lot of ways, you really took me under your wing and exposed me to so much. And it was like my, you were the first person that really showed me that there was a career path with plants.
0: Well, so hold on here. I'm, I'm tearing up a little bit. I had no idea. You were, just my friend. Yeah. you were just my friend back then. <laughs> I had no idea that I was having that impact on you.
1: Yeah, I mean, wow. that's the thing. It's like you always, you never know what's happening when you interact with people, yeah. you know? So it's just so important. Um, you're always, and I think of that like even with my kids too, even when you're not teaching, you're teaching. Like everything you're doing is just influencing people around you. And so, yeah, you were just such a huge influence on wow. me and I'm
0: oh, eternally I'm grateful for
1: it. So then from there, you know, I think even like with you and other people in the Phoenix area, I started doing so much. I mean, you connected me. I ended up with so many jobs in college because of (laughs) you and people I met with you, probably more than the average person. But, you know, we were working together on projects with the urban farm or fruit trees. And I started doing school garden programs. You and I were doing curriculum for charter schools. I started working with Salvation Army, doing garden programs for them. I had, I I was working at another woman's like herbalism company doing herb gardens for her. I was working, you know, in some other kitchen gardens. There was just so much going on in the Phoenix area too. It was very exciting. And, you know, so from that and working with plants, I think how I got to, you know, Gotham Greens, another just real turning point in my career path was, You know, I was at ASU, had switched the major to plant biology at this point, was working with plants. And, you know, it was all education related, most of the job. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, schools asking for, you know, garden programs or garden beds, but they didn't have outdoor space. So then I was like, I'm going to have to learn another way because plants are just such a great way to teach kids. You can teach almost any lesson. You can teach about... Science, you know, environmental stewardship, math, you can teach health, nutrition. I mean, you can really build an amazing program around plants. And so I remember seeing an advertisement for a conference that was happening at University of Arizona in Tucson, and it was on hydroponics for the classroom. That conference doesn't exist anymore, but they ran it for many years then. So yeah, this still would have been, I guess, maybe the late 90s, 2000, maybe a little bit later. And They, yeah, so I went to this conference and I mean, it was at the Controlled Environment Ag Center at U of A. And again, I was just sort of thinking how I would apply this to classrooms in Phoenix. But the second I walked into one of these greenhouses, they're teaching greenhouses and saw the tomatoes growing, you know, 20 feet up into the air. I was so inspired and I just knew I like, you know, sometimes it's just like something presents itself in your life. And you just know that's the door to walk through, you know, and I had that experience at the conference, it was just so clear what the next part of the journey was. And so after going to that conference, you know, I still had I was graduating now um, from ASU and had to decide what's next. And again, is like just, uh, you know, my love for plants. I kind of had a lot of irons in the fire. You know, I had thought about going to naturopathic med school. Oh, I remember um, that. I was also applying at the time to Michael Moore's School for Botanical Medicine in Bisbee because I was very interested in that path. But then, you know, with this, I said, I'm going to go to grad school for plant sciences at U of A. And yeah, so um, right after that conference, I applied. I started interviewing, meeting with professors there, and then was able to start there pretty soon after, yeah, is, and moved down to Tucson uh, to do my graduate work there.
0: I remember that.
1: So yeah, I mean, being there, I mean, it was such an amazing place. What's really, you know, great about the Controlled Environment Ag Center at U of A is, you know, that center is half plant science and half biosystems engineering. So it was such a unique perspective in this you know you've got both sides of it because when you're growing plants in greenhouses it's a little bit different there's some different variables you know there's a lot of equipment you're running there is a lot of engineering and design and so you have faculty from both of those perspectives so even though my major was in plant sciences there was so much engineering involved And just being a grad student, there was so much fun. They have so many different greenhouses at the center. And there's, you know, so many research projects going on, so many different students and people to interact with. And you're all just helping each other. There was such a sense of community. So I might have had my own research projects that were on sensors and controls and growing basil field versus outdoor production, some photosynthesis studies. You know, I had a lot of my own research projects, but then you're also helping your fellow students, you know, and you're working on tomato projects and peppers and other equipment installations. So you really get your hands dirty. You build some greenhouses from the ground up. So you get to see some greenhouse construction. You set up new control systems. There was just so much exposure to everything and they also did a great job, you know, connecting students with, you know, industry and networking events. So you started to kind of see like what you could do post, you know, graduation also as career paths.
0: Nice. When I remember coming down and visiting you a couple of times down there and seeing some of your epic greenhouses.
1: Yeah. No, it's great. And I remember even you coming down there, too, and us seeing some, you know, other really great farms on the way. A few come to mind of us, like, getting to, like, pick saguaro fruits and really seeing oh, what, yeah. you know, I think people can be surprised what, like, a food forest, Sonoran Desert can be.
0: <laughs> right. So then something happened, and you, I, it was after you graduated, and all of a sudden I hear from you, and you're in Antarctica. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So I think I've had a lot of like extreme environment farming experience. I definitely have not had a traditional farming career path, even though it all has been farming related. So when I was at U of A, um, you know, the director of the center at the time and someone on my graduate committee was Gene Giacomelli. And he had the NSF and Raytheon contract at the time to build a new growth chamber for South Pole. And so in Antarctica, they have, you know, there's a couple U.S. bases in Antarctica. And, I mean, just like you know, where there's people, they want fresh food, you know. And so over the years, people had just, like, built all these kind of, like, hobby makeshift greenhouses in different bases. And they all were using hydroponics, which is what I had just gone to school for, because the Antarctic Treaty says that no country can bring their own soil to Antarctica. Oh, wow. So people wanted to grow food there, they automatically started using hydroponics. Now... The NSF was building a new South Pole station at the time that I was in graduate school because all the old domes were getting buried by snow. And so as part of it, they said, you know what, let's build a real food production chamber down here, not just these hobby ones that people are putting in closets and places um, and sheds to try to grow some food. Because what happens in Antarctica is half the year – it's summer down there. And you know, the bases are open, planes are flying in, there's a fresh food supply coming in, right. But in winter, so opposite of us when it's summer here, it's winter there, but that's six months of the year the the sea ice freezes about 50 miles out and it's too cold for the plane hydraulics. So you are really isolated at this time. And so there's no fresh food people are eating. It's just either frozen, dried, canned foods that you're relying on. And So, you know, it was people started growing food. They wanted fresh food. And also there's no vegetation in the South Pole.
0: So it's it's
1: very dry. There's no humidity. There's no smells. And so there was a couple of reasons for the NSF to want to put some real food production systems there. It was to have fresh food fresh fruit, fruits and veggies during winter for the people that were stationed there, but also for the psychological benefits because they know plants are so important to people. Right. And so this food growth chamber was designed. So there was a food production area, but it was, then there was a glass wall and they almost built like a living room on the other side of it. So that people could just hang out and also enjoy the space Wow, and really? Be around plants and the humidity and smell everything. Yeah. And so, University of Arizona had the contract to build this and led by Dr. Jean Giacomelli. And this was going on the side while I was a grad student. So I was always over there and seeing what they're building and talking with them. And, you know, then it got close to ship the unit down. And so a lot of the Raytheon team was coming in and, you know, I had just done a master's degree that had a lot to do with the control system that was installed in this unit. And so I was writing manuals of how it was going to operate and training the Raytheon team, how to operate this thing. And both U of A and Raytheon, you know, as I'm doing these trainings, they're like, you know, you're going down there, right?
0: <laughs> oh, really? And
1: I was like, there's no way I'm terrified. I'm going to fall in a crevasse. I don't like the cold. I just, it was not for me. And, but I got convinced. And so after it went down, I went and did a summer season down there and I was going back and forth between McMurdo, which had sort of its own kind of cobbled together greenhouse and then helping uh get the new one going at south pole flying back and forth running both stations and teaching people how to grow which was just so cool and we were growing everything down there we had all sorts of greens salad greens bok choy dark greens we had tomatoes cucumbers bell peppers I mean, we were growing things like stevia for sweeteners. We were growing all sorts of herbs. I mean, you name it. Mel, I mean, we had everything growing down there.
0: They must have just loved you.
1: It, It was really a lot of fun. I mean, what an experience. And I only did a summer season... I think, I, yeah, they would have liked me to stay a winter, but when I was there for the summer, the sun just went around in a circle all day long. The sun never set, and you know, and then it gets down to the horizon, and I knew it was about six months of winter coming up, and I was like, I think I'm good. I think you're trained, Summer. I'm going <laughs> right. to go back home,
0: yeah. Wow. Wow, and then Anguilla. So I, I just want to revisit real quick here, though. I was with you this whole way. We were not like physically with you, but we were communicating. We were chatting back and forth via email this whole time. And so I I have this memory of you being in these places. And so then you're out in an island somewhere.
1: Yeah. And that was actually during my graduate program. So there's someone named Howard Resch who wrote a book called Hydroponic Food Production, which for so many years was like the only book out there on, you know, hydroponic crop production and the real go-to resource for a lot of people. And I knew this book, had read this book, and kind of looked up to him as an idol. And he came and spoke at U of A. And at the end of his talk, he's always been a consultant, but he was also running this greenhouse in the Caribbean in Anguilla for Cuisinart with similar, you know, intentions as some of the South Pole project. And that, you know, in the Caribbean, like a lot of food is brought in by barge and there's a lot of fresh veggies that just don't, There's a lot of things you don't see in the grocery store there. And the Cuisinart Resort had five restaurants and there was just so many perishable items they wanted to serve that they just couldn't get. So they're like, we're going to have to grow it ourselves for our guests. So Howard had gone down there and he built this facility and ran it. And again, it grew everything. So at the end of Howard's talk at U of A, he said, I'm really open to hosting students and having you come down for an internship I was like, this is for me so I ran up <laughs> all right. at the end of the talk. I had his book. I'm like, you need to sign my book and sign me up. And so I had to figure it all out. And I was really fortunate. You know, U of A was so accommodating to help me do it as a research assistantship and to take a month no, to take a semester during my graduate work and get, you know, credit and working it out with Cuisinart. So Cuisinart, I got to stay like in their five-star resort on the beach working for Howard and was still enrolled in U of A. It was just such a wonderful situation and just a different perspective. Cause again, I, I just got a chance to grow everything. We had, you know, the so many different growing systems. We had ponds for the greens. We had Dutch buckets for vine crops. We had different vertical towers for, you know, strawberries and herbs and some of the dark greens beds, you know, just growing beds filled with, you know, peat based medias for beans. I mean, we grew, we grew everything there. So again, with Howard, I got a lot of, you know, training on, you know, how to manage so many different kinds of crops in a commercial setting, how to manage all the crop scheduling and, you know, to meet the resorts, demand needs. So it was such a valuable experience. And so that was actually before South Pole, because that was during grad school. And then South Pole was right after.
0: Oh, very good. Very good. And then again,
1: from the U of A connection, you know, I got off the ice and another professor of mine from U of A, Merle Jensen, who's very well known in the whole greenhouse and hydroponics world. He called me and said, you know, there's these people that are, they want to build an environmental education center on a barge in New York City. They want to put a couple of greenhouses on it, and you gotta be the one that gets this job. Wow. <laughs> so it's great. I mean, I'm from New York, my whole family was in New York City. So I'd just gotten off the ice and you know went and met them. And it was New York Sunworks, which is still an organization that's changed form so much since you know this project. But at that time, New York Sunworks was focused on building this science barge. And so I was able to go be the greenhouse director for that project. And we built this whole facility. We had a couple of greenhouses on the barge. We powered it with solar panels, wind turbines. We had a generator that ran on biofuels and we got it all from the waste oil from local area restaurants to power that. The water, we had a rainwater catchment system off the greenhouse. We had an RO system where we could purify the Hudson River water if we needed to. We had constructed wetlands on the barge, if there were any wastewater streams. And then we designed a curriculum and went around and did like a tour program around Manhattan for two years for different schools. And we docked it at different piers. It was an awesome project.
0: Wow. And that's
1: about as urban farming as you can get on right. a barge on piers around Manhattan.
0: Yeah. When well, I actually came out to New York, I spent five days in New York and hung out with you on the barge and checked that out. That was awesome.
1: Yeah, and so now I mean there um, I believe the, the science barge was donated and there is another group running it and New York Sunworks um, over the years has morphed into more of it builds um, the organization builds science classrooms and hydroponic science labs like all over at New York City schools. So nice. it, it's really great to see what they've built and done since since then.
0: Okay, now the creme de la creme on the whole game. How'd that happen? Yes.
1: Yeah. And so after that, I met, you know, Viraj and Eric through the science bars and being in New York. And you know, the two of them are the ones who are much more entrepreneurial and they really wanted to start a business. And there were so many reasons. Well, I mean, I guess we started this, you know, over 10 years ago, Gotham Greens has been running for 10 years, selling produce for 10 years. But the three of us got together about 12 years ago, because it took, you know, a little time to get the business going and get the first greenhouse built But again, they were very entrepreneurial, interested in food production. And just saw this as a compelling business opportunity. We could see the products that were in, say, Whole Foods and New York City, and we just thought, like, let's see if we can grow this locally um, <laughs> nice. and sell to these stores, stores and restaurants right in Manhattan. And so, yes, I mean, what's so, you know, what's been great about Gotham Greens is, you know, the three of us have such different skill sets, you know, so we could put that all together to build this company. And so, you know, Eric is our CFO and knew how to raise the money and, you know, handle all the finance for the company. And Viraj is our CEO and works on all, you know, business development and sales and marketing and these other parts of the business. And then I could really focus on the technology and work on the greenhouse design and how to grow everything. And so we were such a good team. And so we got our first greenhouse built in 2011, and that greenhouse is on the roof of a building in Brooklyn. And, you know, at first we knew we wanted to build an urban farming company, and then there's so many decisions to make. You know, how big is it going to be? Where are you going to put it? How are you going to finance it? What equipment are we going to use? And we knew we, I mean, what we wanted to do was provide year-round food, in new york city so new york has a very cold winter climate so we knew we needed a greenhouse right we wanted to be able to grow year round because we wanted to be able to sell to big retailers and keep our shelf space all year round so we knew we wanted a greenhouse and so at that point we were really moving into controlled environment agriculture and certainly that's what my background was in and using greenhouses and hydroponic systems which we can talk more about But we ended up on the roof because, you know, in New York City, we were looking all over the place. Where are we going to put this farm? And, you know, what we were doing is we wanted to build something. We wanted to see if it was a viable business. You know, could this be a profitable business that stands alone? There had certainly been plenty of other examples of food production in New York City. I think, you know, we can say that the reason cities exist is because of agriculture. Right. And so like cities and food go together. But. You know, a lot of the existing, you know, farms, I guess, in New York were either educational or more community based. Right. And so they might be relying on some other external force source of funding to operate. And we were like, no, we really just want to see if this is a viable business on its own. It doesn't need grant money or something. So that was such a focus of the business. And, you know, we were looking around and we needed because of greenhouses, we knew we were going to go into something that was a bit capital intensive. And we couldn't, we needed light, right? Like I really, I am so interested in picking the right level of technology. And that's not an easy thing to choose, right? It depends on the geography, where you're growing, what you want to grow. I want to be as close to nature as possible while leveraging some of like the very interesting technologies that we have today, but without removing too much of nature, right? So I really wanted to use the sun, Um, and for that to be our primary energy source. And so we needed a place in the city that wasn't going to be shaded all the time, especially if you're going to build an expensive greenhouse. So, you know, most of New York City is like very tall buildings. And so as you're looking for sites on the ground, not only are they shaded, but it's a very expensive real estate investment. You know, like we're like new farmers trying to grow, you know, salads in New York City. So, you Know we ended up on the roof because it just worked out, is like that's where we could be sure we'd get the light, and that's where you know it was a better real estate for us, deal a real estate deal for us too. So, our first greenhouse we had it up and running in 2011, we were on the roof of a building, and that was a retrofit. So, we put this greenhouse on an existing building, so there's a lot to think through. I mean, it was such now, these things, I mean, there's precedent for what we're doing, and there's so many businesses with similar business models to what we started. And there's now even precedent in building code for what we're doing. But when wow. we were starting this, you know, 12 years ago, like no one, it was very new. We were very pioneering. And everyone thought we were crazy, you know, they were like, how, you know, so getting these things permitted, finding the buildings that you could use, like it was not easy. And so it was so exciting when we got this up and running and, you know, very quickly after having the first one built, you know, we could see instantly that it was a good business idea. And so we built the second one. And the second one we built, Whole Foods had reached out and said, Hey, we're building a new building." we're remediating a brownfield in Gowanus, Brooklyn. And we would really like to, you know, they're bu- they were building the first ever lead Platinum grocery store and they wanted to put our greenhouse on the roof of their building. And we were so excited about the opportunity.
0: How did that make you feel?
1: I just, I mean, it, it's just so exciting about just to see it was the buy-in that like, this was a good idea. And that there was, it, because it started as like, you know, our idea and then you're trying to like start a fire. Right. And you're like, is there something there? But like uh-huh. when there's a request from someone else and a partner like that to build it, you're like, no, the world wants this, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's like a request, like asking for more, not like you trying to like push your way anymore, you know? So it's just was so exciting. And so we built that second one with Whole Foods on their grocery store. And then after that, you know, The company has changed so much over the years of like level of technology, size of the greenhouses, where we're growing. We built a third one in New York City. And I mean, just so quickly, every greenhouse, we're just at capacity, sold out. There's so much demand in the marketplace. And then after having three facilities up in New York City, we were ready. We just felt that, you know, we had learned how to build the greenhouses. We learned how to run the business. We now knew how to run three different facilities. So we're already starting to become a bit decentralized. And we said, let's do another city. We're ready. And then Chicago ended up being the next city because we all had connections to that city and it fit a lot of the criteria that were, you know, part of why we started the business. It had a cold winter climate so we could use, you know, the production equipment we were using for year round growing. It had a very large population and a big market, and then it was just very serendipitous that at the same time we started looking into other cities, Method had reached out to us, which they have all the eco-based cleaning products. Oh, yeah. and their original founders were still running the company at that point. and they were building a manufacturing facility in the south side of Chicago, building the first ever lead platinum manufacturing facility. And the, you know, architect was William McDonough. And I'm sure you're familiar with the book, Cradle to Cradle. yes. yes. He was the architect on the project. They were building this very inspiring, you know, lead platinum manufacturing facility and said, hey, you want to put a greenhouse on the roof of this building? (laughs) And it was perfect, you know. And so we built that project. And again, that was a larger one. Now, that greenhouse was 75,000 square feet. And so the facilities were getting bigger. We were adding more automation. And then after that, we were operating in two cities and we just felt really good about the business at that point. And we have scaled so much over the last couple of years. So now, and started to move sites to the ground because once we, once you get, we really were always focused on being close to the consumer in an urban environment. But once you get out of some of these very large cities like New York, you can have a greenhouse on the ground and be an urban farm without, with maybe more favorable real estate prices or without the risk of a lot of like skyscrapers shading your property. Right. Mm -hmm. So we ended up building another one in Chicago next door to the first project. We put a hundred thousand square feet on the ground there. We built another, greenhouse in providence baltimore opens another in denver and our latest is now just about finished in davis california what so we and then there's always of course like a pipeline of projects you know behind that so we are just growing like crazy which is so exciting
0: why davis california that's a a long way from New York City
1: yes and this is just what's so interesting is you know the you know the business changes over time and what you know originally was looking at this local supply chain and that so much of the production was coming from California and we were looking at disrupting the supply chain how could we you know be in the East Coast or these other regions where there wasn't food production? and grow it right there. Like at first you'd think, why would you ever build in California? That's like the salad bowl of the country. But it turns out that there, over, you know, the last decade, the interest in indoor farming and controlled environment, agriculture, there are some different drivers that make this a compelling business opportunity, even in California. And I would say there's two pieces of that. One is food safety. And so I think there have been some very big, food safety events and recalls over the last decade related to field production. And, you know, the the distribution of these products is very complicated. It's a very decentralized system. There's so many players. You have the growers and then different harvest crews and then different mm, packers, right? shippers and brokers. And so there's issues with traceability how and that makes it very hard to recall lots and like so when there's an outbreak they just say pull everything off the shelf because we don't know where it came from you know whereas we're completely vertically integrated we have less risk than a field grower we also have i mean we have such a robust food safety program at gotham greens and you know because we're vertically integrated because we have less risk than a field grower that might have like water sources coming from other areas that could be contaminated, you know, a lot of these risks are minimized in this kind of production system. And so food safety has made leafy greens production, which has been had some of the worst recalls in the last decade. is very interesting to do this in you know, protected environments. Mm-hmm. And so there's that. And then the other driver is just some of the environmental benefits. It is it can use so much less land. So, you know, we're using like 95% less water than a field grower would to Mm -hmm. produce the same yield. We're using, oh gosh, I should have these numbers at my fingertips. I want to say we're using 35, it would be like 35 times more land if we were in field production. Oh gosh, I might be getting those numbers wrong. I'm not, (laughs) but I mean, it is, and it's, if you look at, you know, the land use, water use, that we can put these facilities anywhere on non-arable land, like on a vacant lot. We can redevelop brownfields. I mean, there's a lot of other environmental drivers that make this business work, even in California. Wow. Especially in California, even due to, you know, there's a lot of issues with labor shortages, food safety, water availability. So all these things, you know, and now I think, we're moving from, you know, just being this disruptor, you know, on the East Coast to just really being like a part of the way food is grown.
0: Wow. That is truly epic. Congratulations.
1: Yeah. Thank you. It, it has been an exciting and very busy ride.
0: <laughs> and it's in many ways, it feels to me like you were blessed all along the way with the right opportunity at the right time. And you just saw it and took it.
1: I couldn't agree more. And I would say, gosh, what is the quote? It's like the guy, Louis Pasteur, that invented fermentation. He has this quote that says, chance favors the prepared mind. Mm. And I think, you know, that I am very grateful for some of the luck that we've received, like received along the way and just like being ready to take advantage of it when those doors opened and like just having done the legwork to be ready.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm so proud of you for what you've created. I've always been excitedly standing on the edges watching you as you process through this. So congratulations.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: You used a word that I wanted to find before we move on, and that's vertically integrated. Can you tell us what that means?
1: Sure. So in our case, you know, we're all the parts of the supply chain, you know, are under our roof, which is different than a lot of field production, Mm. conventional field production. So I'm growing all the plants, you know, I'm bringing in the seeds and some inputs, you know, but I'm growing everything on site, I'm packaging everything on site, and I'm the distributor to the customer. And typically those are, that can be many, many different groups yeah. for large field operations.
0: Got it. So you guys handle everything. Yes. From seed to and that, delivery.
1: Yep. And that helps us just handle to not have all the losses that happen. You know, there's, mm-hmm. if you read now, I think it's something like 40% of the food in this country is wasted yeah. from this very complicated supply chain and wasted every level, whether it's the farm and then the packers and the processors, shelf life lost along this long distribution chain. And then the the shopper gets only a couple of days of shelf life on their product and things go bad in their fridge. So by us controlling that and being local, we can you know, really take advantage of that and deliver a very fresh product of the highest quality and pass all that shelf life on to the end consumer and help reduce food waste. And I think that's become the more interesting piece. I feel like when we started, you know, a decade ago, food miles was a really big buzzword. And I don't know that that has turned out to be true. I don't know that that is the real driver of why local food is, can be better for the environment i think it has a lot more to do with this food waste and if you think about how much because even if you talk about food waste if 40 of the food is wasted because of this supply chain and you're losing all the shelf life of these fresh perishable products you're throwing all that energy out the door too that went into that and all the water you've right into that that's not being actually consumed as calories anymore you know so i think that is what really makes the local production so compelling
0: well and there's the other the complete other side of the coin which is it's fresher it's healthier for you
1: yes and that you're not losing you know the nutrition can degrade over time and you know we can really just grow everything in like an optimal conditions in our greenhouses
0: awesome and where do people find out more about gotham greens
1: great so we you can find more at Gothamgreens.com. And we certainly have very active social media accounts, too. So you can look at Instagram, Facebook, you can find me on LinkedIn, on our website, too. There are all different links about how to for different inquiries, and you will reach the right team um, through email addresses on the website.
0: Nice. So I'm going to shift on you. And I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it.
1: So I don't know if a very particular event comes to mind except that like I get a lot of things wrong all the time. I get a lot right, but like anyone knows just building a business, you get a lot wrong too. So, you know, I think, you know, something that comes to mind is we've had plenty of projects along the way that just like never happened. You know, you you start working on a site and just something goes wrong and something you just find out something in the engineering far enough down the road that, you know, you can't do it. And it, it's really hard when it feels like a project doesn't make it to the finish line. And so that's why, you know, Gotham Breeds, we have always been so careful to not say we're going to like build greenhouses everywhere, or say how many are announced projects too early. We very much just like we wait until it's almost open to announce it because, you know, there's things that have just, you know, come up over the years and plenty of things just of building the company and like what's the right way to build the company and the organizational structure and how do you make sure that everything's standardized. There's so many things that we try. And if it doesn't work, you just, you just try again. I think that's it. You just keep trying again when something doesn't work until you find the right
0: way. Right. And that's, re- this is really the reason I asked this question is it's not really a failure. It's a learning lesson.
1: Yes, Yeah. absolutely.
0: And what do you consider your biggest success?
1: I think that sitting here, you know, 10 years later, that Gotham Greens made it is a huge success. Mm, Um, And just that the business made it, because I was even looking this up, because there's all these people make all these statements of like, what percentages of business fail. And so I was looking it up. And I read that 20% of businesses fail in the first year, and by year 10, 70% of businesses fail. Those are the most recent recent statistics. And you know, just to be standing here over a decade later with a business thriving is is such a huge success.
0: Oh, amen to that. Congratulations. And what drives you?
1: I really love plants. (laughs) So I think that that is my driver. Like I love plants and I'm a super inquisitive person. And so I just, every new chapter of the company is just an opportunity for learning and to like dig in deeper and learn more about something else. So all things plants, I can learn more about plant physiology. How can I grow them better? How can I get better yields, better quality? How can I grow more with less and use less resources using technology, data, plant science? Yeah. So I think I'm just like very rooted in plant science. Mm
0: -hmm, I can see that. And if you could recommend one book, and I hear maybe you have two for our listeners, what would they be and why?
1: So I would recommend two books. One, I would recommend The Nature Fix by Florence Williams. I tell everyone to read this book. I think it's inspirational to just see all the benefits of spending more time in nature. So it's a very plant focused book, but I think it could inspire people to just realize how important it is to have just like wild space and how all the benefits, psychological, physical of spending time in nature. So that is one I would recommend. And the other I would recommend that has helped me so much to become a better leader and to better use uh, my skills is a, it's actually a personality test and book called Strength Finder 2.0. And you take this, you know, short test, and it gives you your top five strengths. And I have taken a lot of personality tests over the years. And this is the best one I've ever taken. And the whole premise of the book and what I find inspiring about it is that it's, you know, not trying to tell you to be well rounded, you know, it's like, notice what you're good at, and then like, go for it. So again, if I think about my kids, if, you know, like my son's like very good at math and it makes me think like, don't get him the, you know, English tutor, get him the math tutor, like go after what you're really good at.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: I would say even related to recommending the book, The Nature Fix, I would say everyone should spend much more time outdoors in nature. We spend far too much time inside uh so many of us are very sedentary working on our computers in the office all day. And we have so much to learn from nature. It's a great way to relax and it's a great way to spend time with people. I mean, everything we've seen during the pandemic, it's a very safe space to spend time with other people right now. And I, I just think you can get a lot of ideas from that kind of unstructured environment. And even just thinking about biomimicry and what little tips, You're going to learn walking through a forest and what the plants can teach you.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Jen. It has been an absolute delight.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, Greg.
0: Absolutely. And how can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: I think the best way is through the Gotham Greens website or um, probably the easiest to find me on LinkedIn.
0: Perfect. And that's gothamgreens.com? Yep, you got it.